Welcome back, everybody. By today's title, you can assume that we're going to talk about the movie Cape Fear, the 1991 version. And I say that because it's a remake of a 1962 film of the same name that was based on a 1957 book by John D. MacDonald called The Executioners. It's got a great cast and stars Robert De Niro as Max Cady, Nick Nolte as Sam Bowden, Jessica Lange as Lee Bowden, Sam's wife, and Juliette Lewis as Danielle, Sam's daughter. It also includes three actors that were in the 1962 film, Robert Mitchum, Gregory Peck, this was his final theatrical film role, and Martin Balsam. So today y'all in for a roller coaster. Before I jump in, let me just announce that there are going to be spoilers throughout this episode. So if you haven't seen the film already, you should turn back now. So I'm going to just go into the basics of the film and the backstory um, right off the bat. So that as I go through the different analysis, I don't have to keep repeating it over. Basically, Sam Bowden is a lawyer living in North Carolina with his wife, Lee, and teenage daughter, Danielle. In 1977, he was Max Cady's lawyer, and Max was charged with um, raping a 16-year-old girl, which it's important to note is almost the same age as Sam's daughter is now. Sam had evidence that the teenager was known to be promiscuous, Now, we all know that the victim's sexual history was used to disqualify what happened to her and um, used to make the accused seem or be seen as less guilty. Sam hid the evidence and he didn't want to show it to the prosecution because he knew that Max was guilty and he wanted him to be punished. Uh, Max had bragged him about Um, bragged him about how he had beaten two similar charges before. Max eventually pleaded to a lesser charge, a battery, and got 14 years in prison. He might have gotten less time if the evidence evidence that Sam had found out about a victim was presented, and he definitely could have gotten a retrial or he could have been acquitted if people have found out that his own lawyer had suppressed evidence that could have helped him. So when you, the, the whole movie is very dramatic. Like I said, it's a roller coaster. The, the intro to the movie, there's dramatic music, dramatic music throughout. It's very uh, theatrical. When I watched this movie, I wasn't sure how to break this film down Initially, I just took notes of, you know, weird or important things to note that I thought that were really good to discuss. And then I broke it up into categories to sort of to sort of understand the plot as well as the characters and their motives. 
um, and, and sort of like the overall theme of the movie as well. And I did this because it was, I feel the film is a very, uh, character driven. So I divided it into, um, a section, um, about Sam and a section about Max also within the category about Max, there's two subcategories and they are Max's plan and Max and Sam posturing. The Max and Sam posturing, I thought that was important to note because they both are pretty much doing the same, the same thing in the movie, but in different film, I mean, in different forms. And they have different motives, but they have similar personality traits. And most importantly, both of the subcategories under Max highlight Max's personality because I think he is really driving this film forward. He's pushing the plot, the character stories, pushing them forward towards the end, which eventually he is hoping to be their demise and lastly I've combined a section about Lee and Danielle called the family Um, key points under each section I'm going to do a brief summary of each character or characters and I'm gonna start with Sam Sam (laughs) I put good guy in quotes because Sam is trying to be the good guy and trying to do the right thing, um, but he's he's out of his league and he thinks he's going to win and protect his family because he feels he's the smarter person, but he's a different kind of smart than Max Katie. Um, Sam is fearful. He feels bound by the law and his morals. He only breaks the law if it will be in line with his morals or his it's what his moral compass is telling him to do his inability to protect and to provide for his family is limited by his moral compass sam is the facade of the perfect husband and father you know he pretends to have a strong moral compass but his moral compass is weak proving by proven by his past history of cheating on his wife in the movie he's it looks like he's heading down that same route currently with his co-worker Lori also when it comes to a weak moral compass he he's he's scheming and plotting in a way to I mean, he's overall trying to protect his family, but he's also doing things that are very illegal and underhanded. And also his whole issue with the trial and defending Max 14 years ago, he he tries to pretend or he tries to appear to have a strong moral compass or strong morals, but he really doesn't. Um, Max, Max is a people person. Um, unfortunately, not in a good way. He really understands people and understands how they think. And that gives him an edge over Sam. Um, I'm going to give some examples. 
throughout the movie about how he's a people person and he's able to use and manipulate people seemingly effortlessly. He's intelligent, ruthless, always on the verge of losing it, barely controlled rage. He's vengeful. He represents the stage of humanity that is considered uncivilized, but he's uncivilized by choice. He's the beast and the cage that holds the beast at bay all all in one. Max, another way that Mac, makes Max different from Sam is that he is, he's not just book smart, he's book smart and he also has street smarts. So he can think like an intellectual like Sam, but he also, you know, he also knows how to handle himself in situations where he has to be unethical or, um, like I said, like ruthless he has that street smarts. He's able to do that. And he's without, of course, he's without morals, fear, or conscience. Um, Max and Sam are sort of similar in how they try to decide who should be punished and how. They both use the power they have over others. One is just, one is just um, more sane, has a conscience, while the other is a psychopath. Uh, the subcategory under Max, the first subcategory is Max's plan, which is basically, I just do a, a summary of Max's plan plus, plus a detailed list of parts of his plan. Um, the second subcategory is Max and Sam posturing their displays of max masculinity, wealth, and intelligence. The last um, section is titled The Family, sort of describes Lee and Danielle's Sam's relationship with Lee and Danielle his wife and daughter and the sort of family dynamic because it it plays a role in how Max approaches getting vengeance um, against Sam the family is basically the innocence it's Sam's vulnerability his weakness and also I would kind of say it's they're sort of like the lambs to slaughter basically they're kind of just they are um what's the word they're, I mean they're just indirectly going to get hurt by what Sam did collateral damage that's the word I was trying to think of Lee and Danielle are basically collateral damage I'm going to start with Sam Max gets out of jail in the beginning of the movie and he comes to Sam's town where he, where Sam and his family live. And in the beginning, Sam doesn't recognize Max as a former client. I mean, it's been, it's been 14 years, you know, people have changed in age. But it's also very telling that he doesn't recognize, you know, this guy who he hid evidence and allowed him to get 14 years when he could have gotten less. I mean... You know, I mean, you know, Max is a bad guy, but, you know, he was his lawyer. He's supposed to defend him. But it's very telling because Sam has moved on with his life. He's not thinking about this guy from 14 years ago at all. Max doesn't have the same, he didn't have the same luxury because Max has been in prison. He's been unable to forget and move on. He's been fixated on revenge. I mean, he's been in prison for 14 years. What, I mean... There's not there's not much else that he can do. Fourteen years of Max's life is gone while Sam has been able to marry and start a family. He's raised his daughter. 
there's a scene in the movie where Max talks about his daughter and his daughter's mother. And I think he said something along the lines that his daughter was told by her mother that that Max didn't exist. So he doesn't have a relationship with his daughter. He obviously hasn't seen her in, you know, 14 years. I don't know how old she was when she when he went in, but, you know, his his life or the life that he would have had has kind of went on without him. And that's a major, you know, reason for his rage. And in talking about Sam's weak morals, uh, he's... He, there's a scene where he's playing racquetball with his coworker Lori, and they're doing this whole back and forth. He's talking about how he can't tell his wife that he's at the club playing with Lori, and Lori's like, you know, oh, we're just talking, we're just friends. But Max has had a history with cheating, so he, him, just secretly hanging out with this this, this woman it's definitely going to raise suspicions with his wife. And for me, in watching the interaction between the two, he was really trying to choose his words carefully. And I just got the feeling personally that Sam, that he hadn't slept with Lori yet, but he definitely wanted to and was probably planning to if Max Katie hadn't been, you know, gotten out of prison and just, you know, run amok on his life like that. They would have slept together. That would have happened. Eventually, Sam remembers Max, and Max reveals himself like, I'm the guy that you sentenced, you know, that you defended and got, you know, got 14 years in prison. During this scene, Max stops Sam outside the club. You know, this is after he's played rocket ball with, with Lori. And he, he stops Sam outside the club in his car, and he mentions, Max mentions that cigars are his only vice. The fact that he mentions vices alludes to Sam's vice, um, which is women. He has a history of infidelity. The specific woman is Lori. This is this is the beginning, not the very beginning of Max's plan. But this is like one of the beginning steps in Max's, Max's plan to 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 get revenge on Sam. And he's alluding to, I mean, not alluding, but he knows Sam has a vice. And he knows the vice is women and a particular woman being Lori. So I believe that's when, you know, part of Sam's plan where he... He's, you know, his next step was to target Lori and to target Lori to get to Sam and affect him in some way. As Sam is driving away, Max says, you're going to learn about loss. And this comes into play at the end in the final scenes. I believe it was Max's plan to have Sam watch him kill Lee and Danielle, which is his wife and daughter which is also another um, a weakness, a vulnerable spot for Sam, which is, you know, his family. <laughs> Sam and he, after he, he starts to see him like out and about in the neighborhood, he saw them at the club. And Sam, has, he gets closer to his family and he, and he pretty much 
Sam starts to feel like it's more serious. So Sam wants to get out of town because Max is in town and he's afraid that that his family will be, be harmed. Max is seen by Lee. Max is like in their backyard and Lee sees him out of the window. So it's like this guy is getting closer to his family and he's he's worried, he's afraid, yet he doesn't tell his wife about what's going on, which is that a man, his former client, who he wrongfully allowed to be sentenced to jail for 15 years, is now stalking them. He he reveals like little by little, but he doesn't just come out with it right away. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, at the end when I did the whole, the write-up, I was thinking like, if it really mattered, if he had told his family what was really going on with Max right away and they had, you know, been proactive and I don't know, like left town immediately, you know, I don't, I kind of think that it really wouldn't have made a difference because the way Max is mentally, you know, he set this plan up and he's targeting Sam, I feel that you know he has he's had 14 years to to make this plan and he's probably thought of every you know all the possible scenarios he's studied Sam he knows Sam's history he knows his past he knows his family he knows his personality he can predict his behavior i mean i think now that you know that i'm thinking about it that it just probably would have just accelerated you know, Max's plan to revenge, it just, it wouldn't have gone on as long as it did if, you know, Sam was sort of slowly feeding his family these breadcrumbs about how serious this guy was. But anyway, Sam, he eventually tells, you know, at some point he eventually tells Lee a little bit more about Max, but he acts like he doesn't remember what Max's charge was. Really, he's just trying to downplay how dangerous Max actually is. He thinks he's protecting them, but by lying and omitting information, he's actually putting them in more danger because they don't know that they should be more afraid than they actually are, especially his daughter. You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, when I did the backstory of how the the victim that he, he was sentenced for... Uh, I mean, he pleaded to a lesser charge of battery, but regardless, the victim was 16. Sam's daughter in this movie is 15. I mean, that should have been more reason just to be honest. I mean, at least for them to be more alert. And I think if he had told his family, you know, everything about Max's history, his criminal record, I think that the way that his daughter responded to Max would have been a lot different um, because she's really naive and he's he's just he just downplayed everything like it wasn't a big deal like this guy just got in a fight it was very violent you know his history he had a violent history like he's just really downplaying it and they just kind of think it's not a big deal this is just some guy that got out of jail and he's just you know it's gonna blow over it's you know everything's gonna be fine which is not not at all what happened. The next category is Max. He is he is absolutely the 
he, I mean, he, I mean, I, I guess he's, you say he's, he's a star. I mean, he's one of the stars, but his character is very, he is the reason why every action is taken. And so him having this plan, him, you know, meticulously being prepared for every outcome, knowing what's, you know, what Sam is going to do. He just really propels the whole movie forward. I mean, without him, the movie's not really going anywhere. It's, it's, it'd be a lot harder for it to go to the next step or the next scene or the next plan. Definitely not. It wouldn't have done it as dramatic as it did. But anyway, in the very first scenes shows Max in prison right after, right before he's released. And he has these back tattoos and the tattoos are the scales of justice. And in the particular tattoo, the the scales, you know, the scales of justice, they're equal. You know how usually they're like, they're, sometimes they show them as kind of one up and one down. But in his particular tattoo, um, the scales of justice are equal. Fair, unlike the injustice that happened to him. He thinks, he likes to think of himself as like God and moral and just, he wants to will the punishments of his choosing like God. He, I mean, people could argue that the guy deserved to be punished. You know, he, he didn't deserve to get off on what he did. And, you know, like from a legal standpoint, you could also say, well, his lawyer was supposed to defend him regardless to the best of you know, their ability. He's definitely coming. I mean, he kind of, he kind of sees things in a moral and a legal point of view towards what happened to him. He definitely feels that injustice was done towards him and he couldn't, you know, get justice. He couldn't, he could be punished for what happened, but Sam got away with what he did. And so he's like, I want a world punishment. I want to decide, you know, what happens to you. What's your punishment for, you know, letting me, you know, sit in jail for 14 years. There is a movie theater scene and it's the first part where, okay, so I, I initially said this was the first part where Sam, I mean, I initially said it was the first part where Max's plan is set in motion but I actually think it was before that scene, right after he was released from jail and he's walking out of the prison and the, one of the guards asks Max about his books because he's been reading and, and learning and he's gotten a law degree while he's been in prison. And when the guard asks him about his books, Max says that he doesn't need them anymore, meaning that he's learned all that he's needed to learn in order to make his plan so he doesn't need the books anymore so he's like he's his plan was already finished when he got when he got out of prison so i guess his first steps the first step of his plan i guess was making the plan getting out of prison and then the active part of his plan is in the first you know the early the early scenes when he's in the movie theater and he's getting under Sam's skin. He's basically, he's in the movie theater and Sam and his wife and daughter, they're watching a movie 
And he's basically this obnoxious guy in the movie who's like smoking a cigar. He's laughing out loud. It's crazy. And so he, he, I mean, it's, it seems like a little thing, but that's how, you know, he's starting as something small and minor and then it builds up to bigger things and it also builds up to where Max is very cool and calculated and controlled but by the end of the movie all that is like gone away and sort of his mental stability is I feel it deteriorated so it's kind of like a climax and get you know as far as you get to the end to the climax he his mental state deteriorates he loses it basically in the end and in regards to the scene in the movie, like I say, he was in the movie theater and he was smoking a cigar and I'm just, I don't, I don't think it was legal to smoke in a movie theater. That was just one of the things I was like, why is he smoking a cigar in the movie? Could you do that in 1991? And maybe he just wasn't, you weren't supposed to, but, but, but because he's being obnoxious, he's just in there smoking a cigar, like huge plumes of cigar smoke. It's ridiculous. And he's just being loud. It's basically, I said to get under his skin, but it also starts where he sets him off kilter, where he kind of just like throws him off, where it's, you know, that little thing. And you're like, that happened today at the movie theater. That was really weird. Like, what's going on? What does that mean? Thinking of him being like obnoxious his max's clothing is very obnoxious throughout the movie it's weird it's kind of because it's 1991 but it also looks a bit dated you know like he he's kind of dressed like he would have dressed in the late 70s early 80s like around the time he went into prison so it's a little dated it's kind of like flashy 70s pimp kind of look going on it's just really bold, loud, flashy, new money kind of clothes. He's got this bright... He, he ended up inheriting some money from when his mother died. Backstory. So he, he has this bright, um, bright red vintage Mustang. He's wearing these white loafers, which was like... Like I said, it was kind of like he's, he's stuck in the past. And when I thought of that about... You know, the way he dresses is like late 70s, early 80s. It was, I, you know, I, I do think it was very intentional for them to do that because it's it signifies that he's literally stuck in the past, that the life he's lost and how he's been wronged, he's stuck in that time period, you know, when he first went into jail. Like he's just stuck there. He's fixated on what happened to him. Um, you know, probably the last time he's seen his daughter, that was definitely intentional to sort of signify that he he hasn't moved on at all. And as you watch the movie, as it goes on, you you it's obvious that he hasn't. And his particular style of dress is when you put it side by side with Sam and his family, their style is very conservative. It's a you know muted color palettes, cultured and refined versus Max's trashy hillbilly gaudy clothes. So it's a weird, it's a, it's a juxtaposition of class and wealth. You know, Max has this kind of, you know, he has a little bit of newfound wealth, 
you know, Sam and his family and their more conservative wealth. I like that they put that kind of juxtaposition up you know, personalities, because it kind of makes it, you kind of want to, you know, say that, oh, Sam and Max are very different, but like I said, I mean, they're in different classes, you could say, but their personalities are, there are some ways that they're alike, but on the surface, you would see them as very different if you're only looking at their outward appearance. Um, There's a scene after the movie theater scene where they go get ice cream, and... The wife makes a joke about how Sam knowing how to fight dirty because that's what he does for a living as a lawyer. And that particular joke is ironic because he sort of fought dirty illegal against his client's own best interests when he was Max's lawyer. So the backstory of that is, you know, they're at, they, you know, they finish the movie, they go get ice cream. And they're talking about this, you know, the guy that was at the movie theater being really obnoxious. And his daughter was like, you know, why didn't you just punch that guy and, you know, you know, get him in line, you know, make him shut up or something. And then that's when the wife makes a comment about how he knows how to fight dirty, which is like, because you don't really know the backstory about Max and Sam and what Sam did at this point in the movie. But once it all comes together, that comment is particularly, it kind of made me laugh. I was like, oh my God, you know, cause he, he's like, he's supposed to be this good guy, but he, he knows how to fight dirty, knows how to do illegal things. Um, so he's not as good as he appears. Max gets under his skin while they're at the ice cream place because when Sam goes to pay for everyone's ice cream, the cashier is like, oh, that guy paid for everyone's ice cream already. I think, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if, if it's not about what everyone else is thinking. So this is like my opinion. I think that it was a way, you know, like I talked about the subcategory about Max and Sam posturing, how it's about, you know, masculinity and wealth and power and intelligence and that kind of thing. And that particular scene, I felt, was a way, two ways of Max sort of posturing to signify his wealth and also his masculinity. Because I know it's like a small thing, but this is just some guy who's like basically saying, hey, you know, not like literally saying, but sort of saying like, hey, you can't, you know, you can't provide for your family. You can't protect your family. Let me let me pay, let me just pay the bill for you, you know? And then also when it came to like the wealth part, he's like, you know, I just got a job, but I got, you know, I got some little money to throw around. I can pay your bill. I can, you know, provide for your family. And it was kind of like, I guess, you know, like I said, like posturing, but also trying to emasculate him maybe in some way, just like a play of, of power between him and Sam and he does more stuff like that throughout the movie. And I'll mention it when I get to that subcategory. But I just kind of put this one together because it was like right after the movie scene. But I definitely think that it was more than, I think it was a little bit more going on. The wife has a dog and the dog dies suspiciously. I think they find, I think they figure out that the dog was like poisoned or something. But he dies suspiciously 
and it's not shown in the film, but it it's obvious and uh, and also obviously apparent to Sam at this point this guy Max who he he knows is is already like stalking him but that somehow Max has got into the house and poisoned the dog because they knew the dog didn't go out that particular day or something the guy had to gotten in the house but he doesn't know how and in the film you know I was thinking about this afterward like after I watched it because I watched it twice and then the second time I watched it Max being in the house comes into play later on because he gets in again. But it's, they say just one time, I mean, the dog, the dog being poisoned was like, you know, like one time that he got in. But I'm thinking like he might have been coming, he might have gotten into the house more than one time. You know, I mean, I guess he could just go and poison the dog, do whatever he was going to, you know, do or take whatever he's going to take. And then oh, I'll just go back into the house some other time and do another part of my plan. But I'm like, he could have been in and out of there like two or three times and they wouldn't have known because he's he's like super smart. He's like a ninja or something. I don't know. He's, I don't, this guy has like superpowers. But so I was like, he, I mean, it made it seem like he had just been in the house like one time, at least, at least one time. But I'm thinking like he could have been in there and he could have did, a bunch of other stuff, but they didn't really mention it. But if he got in one time, he could obviously get in more than one time. After the dog is poisoned, Sam goes to the police and has Max arrested. <laughs> he thinks this is going to stop Max or intimidate him, but it just it just makes Max more angry that this guy is doing this. You know, he's not scared of the police, and he's really... Max is really smart, so he's like, whatever plan, or whatever you think you can do to me, or whatever you plan or think you're going to be able to do to me, I can, I can already think ahead, and you know, it's just not going to happen, he's just, he's like a genius, I don't know, he's he's highly intelligent, when I was reading about the the film, I don't know what I was on. Maybe I was on Wikipedia, but it described Max as being naturally intelligent. So I have, I mean, just thinking of how his plan and how he was always two or three steps ahead of Sam, he, I, he's a lot smarter than people think he is. And when he talks, he doesn't sound very smart. Like he's got like this really strong, I mean, he doesn't have like this refined, you know, accent. I think Sam called him a hillbilly or something like that. You know, like he was from the country, out in the boonies somewhere. And so he doesn't sound like when people think of someone intelligent, you know, they hear him talking, they're like, oh, he's not intelligent. Like he can't, he can't possibly be smart enough to do all this stuff. But he's, he's smarter than Sam. And I feel like probably, I mean, he could, he, he could be, I mean, as far as academically, he could go toe-to-toe with Sam in, like, whatever he's doing. He's giving Sam a run for his money. This lawyer, you know, he's supposed to be so smart. He can't defeat the simple ex-con or whatever. So, like I said, he tries to get him arrested. He thinks that's going to make a difference, but it just makes Max angrier. Sam, he don't realize that Max is already three to four steps ahead of him. And he's playing chess, not checkers. Sam... He thinks he's a smart one, and Max is just a dumb ex-con. I felt that 
Max was a people person. I thought of like, oh, that's a quality. Yeah. Like he knows how to talk to different kind of people. He knows how to appeal to different people, no matter their age. He he reads people really, really well. There's a scene where I mean, there's several scenes. Max realizes that there are holes and weaknesses in Sam's life. And I think this is just some from somehow he's been able to I don't know. He found he's found out all kind of stuff about Sam. He he recognizes the holes and weaknesses in Sam's life, and those are the parts that he preys on. And it's definitely you know the people in his life. So first he targets Lori, then he targets Lee by poisoning her dog, and then during the scene where Sam and Lee are are fighting, they're arguing about. I believe it's about Lori because Lori called Sam. Lori called the house and then Sam rushed upstairs to take the phone like in a private room. But Lee already knew what was going on. And so they're arguing about Lori. And that's when you find out that he has a history of infidelity. But they're arguing all about this and they've argued about it before. Danielle is upset, you know, because they're arguing they're fighting again. Max, I don't know. He... I don't know how, well, he, okay, so he, okay, this is how his plans are, you know, I'm just thinking about this now. This is how his plans are like three or four steps ahead. So he knew, so he knows that Sam has a thing for Lori, his coworker. He knows that. He knows that they got a little something going on. They're planning about to do something. And so he attacks Lori. He knows that's going to propel Sam to be more afraid, but he knows Sam is not going to tell his wife everything because he doesn't want to have the conversation with his wife about why he is so, you know, why he feels the way he does about Lori. And then he knows at some point, I guess they're probably going to talk. They're probably going to call. And when Lori calls Sam, you know, he's like, I just have to wait maybe like a day or a couple of days. They're going to talk and and then Sam is going to be kind of secretive about it because he's, he's going to want to sort of show some affection toward Lori, but he he's not going to want his wife to know about it. And so, I don't know, he like kind of timed it. Like he knew, he knows how things are going to play. He knows how things are going to go. So that's when he swoops in, calls Danielle's, phone in her room because it's the 90s you don't have a cell phone she has um I guess her own line or maybe he just called no I think she probably has like her own line because if she if he called the house phone there was always the the you know that her parents might answer and so I'm like she he must have called her like her own line like I mean she's a teenager she probably has like she had her own phone line or whatever but anyway he calls Danielle's phone this is where she becomes you know the next target basically he you know he knows how like I said he knows how to read people he definitely knows how to read Danielle she is the daughter that is ignored you know not paid attention to because her parents they're always fighting you know they're going through their own their own drama when Sam and Lee were arguing you can tell you know about you know what they were talking about how they were you know yelling at each other that 
Sam's cheating was a major issue in the marriage. They went to counseling. He made it seem that Lee was, she was really, really affected by that. And I can't remember exactly if he said that she was prescribed medication or she had to be, you know, committed or something like that. But I definitely got the feeling that, you know, with the Sam and Lee dealing with all of that, that Daniel really got left out of everything. You know, they weren't really pay attention to her because they're trying to, you know, get this sorted out. They're dealing with whatever they're dealing with. The whole family end up moving from, I don't know where they lived before, but they end up moving to where they currently live. And that's like another thing that probably makes Danielle more vulnerable. The fact that she had to be uprooted and the whole family moves and everything changes. Her parents are always fighting. So this just kind of makes her an easy prey for someone like Max. But his whole interaction with Danielle is really, really weird. There are two times in the film where he directly interacts with her. And I, I'm, I believe I covered that in the last section, the one about the family. It's really, really weird. So, you know, at this point, he's decided to target Danielle. Um, when he targets Lori, this is another, his, his interaction with Lori is really weird. It was very tense because watching the movie, you already know that he's a bad and dangerous guy, but Lori doesn't know this at all. So Lori's in a bar. She's drunk because Sam was supposed to meet her. Um, and he didn't because he trying to sort out all this stuff that's happening with Lee that's going at home with Max on the loose, you know, stalking them. You know, this Lori situation is taking a back seat. And he was supposed to meet her. He stood her up. And she gets um she gets hurt by that. And so she's, you know, she goes to a bar and she starts, you know, she's drinking at the bar. By the time she starts talking to Max, she is drunk. She's really drunk. And Oh, this is so weird. So he starts when he's talking to Lori. I mean, he's he's charming. You know, he's playful. He's he's funny. But uh, he was talking to Lori, and he he was making he was making jokes. So he's like he's talking to her, and he's giving away little bits about his past and being in prison. But he he kind of lies about like he he said like oh I was in prison. But then he lied about why he was in prison. So he's like, he's sort of telling the truth, but he's he's partially telling the truth and then partially not telling the truth. And he the lie that he tells, it just basically makes him seem le- a lot, a lot less harmless than he actually is. And then he's he's making these jokes that allude to his violent past and it was kind of, I don't know if this is just me knowing what happens in the movie, but it was kind of like a red flag for me. Like, it was just kind of weird. You know, she was making this joke about um, some guy that got, some guy that murdered his wife or something. And then he kind of like laughs and he makes a similar joke. And it was just too much for me. But I mean, even if she was the kind of person that would have seen that as a red flag and would have been kind of put off by that. 
at this point in the night, she's way too drunk to even notice anything or, you know, her inhibitions are down. She's not really paying attention. You know, she's drunk. She's upset that this, you know, the guy, you know, that she works with, Sam, has a crush. She has a crush on him. They have a crush on each other. And then he stood her up because she's trying to get it in. And he's got, Sam's got stuff he's trying to deal with at home. So her mind is not in the right place. It's not where it should be. Eventually, um, he takes, I guess it's back at, yeah, it's back at her place. They go back and they're supposed to be getting it on because she's supposed to, she, her plan is, oh, she meets this good looking guy. She's going to sleep with him and I guess get back at Sam, you know, but during the whole incident, it gets really weird and Max violently assaults Lori he um, dislocates her shoulder like he I can't remember if he handcuffed her or he like pulled her arm a certain way behind her and when he did it he like dislocated her shoulder and then he bites off he bites her on the face and bites off like her whole cheek like it's it's crazy it's weird Max like he he knows how to use vulnerable people and situations to his advantage like he he knows that how this woman felt about Sam. He knows that she's drunk, so she's a little bit more vulnerable than if she would have been sober. You know, she probably wouldn't have even gone, you know, with this guy. And then she probably wouldn't have even, you know, took this guy home if, you know, if she wasn't so caught up trying to, you know, get Sam's attention. Like, she wouldn't have even been checking for this guy. So... He definitely knows how to use people in situations to his advantage. To understand people in that way and how to work situations to your advantage. I mean, I think that makes you a people person. It's just, you're just not a good person. It's crazy. Keeping with how Max knows how to read people, he's a people person. Sam, Sam gets this bright idea to hire a private investigator and as always, Sam thinks he's in control of the situation by hiring the private investigator, but it just makes things worse. And I think that's when he really saw how dangerous and violent Max could actually be. <laughs> so stupid. I think I mentioned this. I can't remember if I mentioned this later, but I'm just going to talk about it now. And then if I mention it later, I just mention it later because I'm just, I'm not even sticking to the script right now. Anyway, this scene is so stupid. Sam, Lord, Sam, the private investigator suggested Sam, like, oh, let's, I I can get some guys to beat up Max, and this is really gonna make him go away. He gets the guys to beat up Max, and then Max ends up beating up the guys, like his three dudes, and then it's Max, and Max just whoops all of them, like, real bad. Sam is, (laughs) he's just, He's so he's so smart, but he's like stupid. So I don't know why he wants just he. This is why I'm like Max and Sam are very similar. Like he wanted to see this guy get punished, and he wanted to watch this guy get beat up to a pulp by these three dudes. They had like lead pipes and and chains and stuff. They were gonna tear up Max, but Sam was he wanted to be there to see Max get whooped, but that didn't. That's not what happened. So Sam is like 
I, I don't know where they were. They were like behind some alley or somewhere. Like I guess where Max was staying and gets Max gets out of his car and the guys jump him. There's like a dumpster back there. Sam is hiding behind the dumpster watching these dudes. You know, they start to beat up Max and then Max just like flips the scripts and starts beating them up. And that's <laughs> Sam, that's when Sam gets really scared. But I'm just like, this is so stupid. You should be at home, you know, with your family but no he's he's a lot like max he wanted to see this dude get beat up and get hurt you know what i mean like i'm so oh my god so stupid but yeah that was definitely the point where he got really scared he's like okay this guy is he can really do some physical damage i don't know why he didn't think this man knew how to fight sam is the one that looks like he don't know how to fight They hired, they hired, the, Sam hires the private eye, and then they just think this guy, they just think Max is stupid. They think he's harmless. He's not as dangerous. Everyone is uh, underestimating him. The The private eye doesn't think that Max knows that he's being followed or watched, but the private eye is at a restaurant supposedly trying to do surveillance on Max, but Max is like, I'm going to cover your check or whatever you're paying to show that, oh, I know that you're following me and you're watching me. And he says he confronts the private investigator and he sort of just like reads him for filth to just, and you could tell that he had really like hit a nerve with the private investigator. Like what he was saying was like, it's true. And he was just kind of like fuming underneath and he was just trying to, you know, kind of play it cool and pretend like it wasn't true or that it wasn't bothering him or whatever, but you could tell. And he just, he knows how to read people. He knows what to say that's going to hurt them because he like, he already understands how they think and their personalities or archetype or whatever. This guy is like, he's crazy, like smart. (laughs) So like, it's just all these things that Sam is doing it just seems like it just escalates and it just makes Max more angry it doesn't stop it because Max is already prepared for that step that Sam thinks is going to be a surprise to Max you know you can't stop him if he's already prepared that Sam is going to do this so I already know that I'm going to do this and I've already set it in motion so it's like you can't you can't stop someone like that at least not how I don't know how you would, but definitely not the way that Sam is trying to do it. Guys, it's, it's, like I said, it's a roller coaster. It's it's crazy. So this is where I'm going to get into the subcategories. So the first category, the first subcategory is Max's plan. So step one is to get under Sam's skin, disrupt his life somewhat subtly at first. Then step two, target people he cares about. 2A, which is like part of step two, target his vice, targeting the other woman that and it will put him in a compromising position and make him weaker, scrambling, disorganized. Step 2B, target his family. Part 2A, the part about him, you know, you target the other woman that will put him in a compromising position, that will limit how he can protect his family. Because he, like I said earlier, like he's not going to say certain things to his family because 
he don't want them to find out about what he's doing. So he's like lying to protect himself and saying like he's trying to protect his family. But he's acting like, oh, I don't want to tell you, you know, this or something that happened. But, you know, there's more to it and he's not telling the full story. And that's going to make him more vulnerable because it's making them not it's not allowing his family a way to protect themselves because they don't know everything and he can't tell them everything because it, he doesn't want them to know about his relationship with Lori because he's basically about to cheat on his wife again it, it just that whole part is what makes him vulnerable step three once Sam is completely vulnerable without resources and in shambles that's when Max will go in for the kill that's what happens in the end second sub subcategory under max is max and sam posturing masculinity wealth intelligence sam i guess this would be like the first part the first time they're sort of like posturing to each other trying to prove something sam offers max money to make him leave to leave town and that essentially would make him leave his family alone it doesn't work because i mean he's not gonna take the money he has money he's like i have money i have a you know, he's bought this new car. The money, he's not motivated by money. You, you know, Sam promising him money. It didn't matter what kind of money he offered. He wouldn't have, Max wouldn't have taken it. There's another time. I think it's the same scene where he offers him money. But Max tells Sam that he learned to read while he was in prison. He read legal books. He eventually became a lawyer. And so he's like, now we're equals. You're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. Being the man showing masculinity and protecting his wife and daughter, Sam attacks Max at the parade, but this is just all part of Max's plan to rile Sam up and egg him on as a part of the, you know, the next step. Like, it's all, it's all a part of his plan. Sam doesn't know he's being played. Sam is often left emasculated by his inability to stop Max and protect his family. The feeling of defeat is all over his face at the dinner on the houseboat. I'm, I think I'll go into that later. But, I, you know, now that I think about it, I think the whole of him, I mean, he, he wants to stop Max from bothering his family. It's also Sam trying to be the man in traditional sense and protect his family. But every time he does, he fails. This other guy, some other man, is outsmarting him he's just outdoing him in every way it's kind of like you know when I said emasculating it's like his family you know is seeing him fail at protecting them and they're seeing this other guy who's stronger he's faster he's smarter he's trying to harm them but like he's doing the things that I mean maybe if Sam was more like Max then he would be able to protect his family but he's not, and I think that's part of where it comes in, um, Sam feeling emasculated by the whole situation. And it sort of like fuels him to, you know, always trying to do more, thinking that I do this, this is going to help, but it doesn't. So it just fuels that feeling of him feeling like he can't do enough for his family. Um, Sam tries to use his wealth to bribe Max, but it, it didn't, like, you know, like I said, it didn't work. Sam used his money sort of like to display his wealth. Like I have, I have like 10, 10 K I can give you. You can skip town with this, but Max is there in this new classic, you know, Mustang. This is his display of wealth. He's like, 
you're showing, you know, you're posturing with this money with that you have. Look at me, you know, I, I can do that as well. That that means nothing to me. Sam uses his wealth and resources to attempt to, to get rid of Max, but fails. Sam attempts to outwit Max throughout the film and even when his wealth fails. There's um, the scene outside the athletic, athletic club where uh, for the first time when Sam and Max talk, Max tells Sam who he is. Max snatches Sam's car keys right out of the ignition. Sort of a show of a he's the dominant one in the situation. He's in control of the situation. So it's like showing his masculinity in that I'm the man. I'm in control of the situation. 14 years ago, you were my lawyer. You were smarter than me, you know, but he had control in that situation and Max didn't have any power, any control. And he was, he ended up going to prison. So like now he's like, I'm going to be the dominant masculine one. You know, I can snatch your keys right out of the car and you know, you can't leave until I tell you to leave until I give you these keys back. Basically he's trying to have control of the situation and he pretty much does throughout the movie max is the one that's in control even though sam thinks he's in control he's had time to catch up with sam in a way as far as you know money and intelligence because you know he learned how to read he ended up studying and becoming a lawyer sam doesn't have that kind of power and control over him anymore you know, he's gotten the control back. And now that he's free, he can will this power and control in his form of revenge. Also how they're similar. But like, like as I, I said, they both use their power to control each other. Sam used it in the past. Max is using it now. When Sam used his power, his intelligence, his knowledge of a law, his knowledge of law as a lawyer over those who break the law, and he can use his power to make or break someone's life by defending them or not defending them properly, like he did Max. Sam also used, used his power when instigating a relationship with Lori. So during the film, it didn't really explain, I don't think it really explained what her role was in the, where Sam worked, but they worked together. They worked in the same office or whatever. But I felt like she's definitely younger than Sam. And I felt like she was like his subordinate. Like he's a lawyer. She Maybe she was like a paralegal or like a secretary or something. I just felt like just the way that she acted towards him and the way she was kind of like chasing him. That she might have been like his subordinate like career wise and that kind of thing. But he definitely, Sam definitely had control over Lori he doesn't meet her when he says he's going to meet her. So she goes to the bar and gets drunk and sleeps with some random dude. You know what I mean? Have that kind of control over someone where they just throw out their own self-preservation because they're so busy caught up on what you did and how you're treating them. They're like, oh, I, I just, I need to get back at him. I need to sleep with this guy. So like mentally, you know, he's has control over her. The age difference, you know, it's unbalance of power, him being uh, a man in a higher position, or just being a man, period, Lori being a younger woman. There's all kind of like power dynamics going on. And she's just catching breadcrumbs. He's making promises. Nothing's happening. And I put this comment that Lori is pretty. She's young. Why is she chasing and waiting on this married man and getting upset and being in a bar and 
that's why I felt she was young. I felt like if she was older or more more his age, I, I don't know, maybe it would have been less likely that she'd have been chasing after him like, you know, a schoolgirl. Sam <laughs> Okay, this is the part where I where I was like, I think I mentioned I'm thinking I'm gonna mention the beat down later. You know, I was saying earlier when the private eye said, like, okay, I can get these guys to beat down Max for you. And Sam says, yeah, let's do that. Instead of Sam going home, minding his business, to just let whatever happened happen and stay out of it as much as he could, he couldn't stay away. He he, he just had to be, he's fighting for control, always having control in the situation. And he inserts himself in the plan. Like I said, he was there hiding behind a dumpster, you know, because he wanted to see Max get beat up. But before that happened, he, I don't know how, he finds Max at a restaurant. And then he threatens Max and sort of warns him about the beatdown that's coming. He says something like, you need to get out of town or uh, or there's going to be hell to pay or something like that. And I'm like... Didn't you just pay this man to have people beat up him? And then just him trying to be in control and trying to act like he doing something. He could have just went home, let the guys take care of it or not take care of it. Like, cause they didn't, the, the guys got beat up instead of Max. Sam is so annoying in this film. I mean, you want to feel sorry for him, but he's just, he's annoying. <laughs> And like it's just it just makes things worse. It just makes it worse because he ends up getting <laughs> Max ends up because he went to the restaurant where Max was at and he warned him about the beat down and then Max got actually got beat down. Max took Sam to court and got a restraining order. And so I'm like, I don't know if that was part of Max's plan or that was just a great little addition that he could add into the plan but Sam is just playing right into everything that Max is doing it's just it's it's sad so <laughs> so during the the beatdown scene Max is doing this whole monologue where he he's quotes some passage I can't remember what it was but he quotes a passage and he compares himself to God or he says he's like God he wants to be the one to wield punishments no one's gonna punish him for anything so he's like these guys it's not gonna happen oh my god so like I said after the beat down Max is really panicking I mean not Max Sam is really panicking he thought he's the smartest guy in the room and he can't be outsmarted by Max, but he is every single time. <laughs> so he he starts, he's panicking, and so he comes up with another plan that he thinks is going to work. And he plans to kill, he plans to have Max killed, basically. So he sets up a fake trip. He So he he's going to fake like he's gone so that Max can think that Lee and Danielle are home alone and then... Max will come to the house and then Sam and the pride investigator will be there and they can shoot him upon entry. <sighs> like, I mean, there's a pattern here that whatever Sam is, is going to do, that Max is going to outsmart him. So that don't work. Um, so 
this is not funny. This is not a funny part, but it's just like, it's just so ridiculous at this point. So they're in the house. <laughs> Sam is trying to hide because he knows that Max is going to be out there like watching the house. So he's, so he's trying to like stay away, you know, stay away from the windows. So no one will see that he's there. Oh my God. So <laughs> Max gets in the house. They don't know that he's gotten out. They don't realize he's in the house until like the people are dead. So the Max kills the housekeeper, dresses up in her clothes, kills the private investigator with the piano wire, which he had previously, when he previously broke in the house, he stole the piano wire. When they come downstairs, oh my God, y'all. When this is going, I can't remember what happened and why they went downstairs. Something happened. Anyway, Lee, Danielle, Sam, they all come downstairs. Oh my God. Sam is in there. He's in the kitchen and the, the housekeeper is in her dad. The private eyes is the private investigator is there is dead. Sam, they're freaking out. Sam goes over to the private investigator and slips in the blood that's on the floor. Oh my God. And they are. <laughs> They're just like, so he's slipping in this dead guy's blood. And then Lee, Lee tries to help him up. And then they both slip in, in the blood and they're like screaming and freaking out. And they, it's chaos, just chaos, chaos and panic ensue. And then they just like, okay, we got to get out of here. We got to leave town. <laughs> and, they just, and they just go. And so I don't, okay. So this is the, this is the famous, this is the, so after they leave town, they just leave. They call the police after they've, you know, they've been on the road and they've been in town. So if you, if anyone is a fan of The Simpsons, and um, this is a, an older episode, but when Sideshow Bob was trying to kill Bart, and they did like a, a ripoff of this movie, and if you ever remember The Simpsons, where. <laughs> The family is leaving town and Sideshow Bob is strapped underneath the station wagon. <laughs> and I I just I when I first saw the Simpsons episode, I had never seen this movie. And when I whenever I watch this movie, it makes me laugh because I imagine Sideshow Bob being underneath the Simpsons station wagon as they're like leaving town and Max is lit for real. Like this really happened in this movie. Like Max is underneath. He strapped himself underneath the car, and they're like driving. And he's I don't know. They've been driving like miles, and he's underneath the car. And they're trying. They're going to their houseboat. And when they park their car, the family gets out of the car and they go to their boat. And <laughs> Max he unstraps himself from the car. And he get, he crawls out from under the car, and when he crawls out and he stands up and he looks around, there's a lady standing over by like, I don't know, by some building, and she has this look of shock on her face because she she knows she just saw this car pulled in, and then this dude was underneath the car. He's looking all dusty, and his clothes are all like they've got like rips of them and stuff because he's been strapped underneath this car as they've been driving which is ridiculous. I don't even know if people can do that. Like if that, like when your face burn up or something or like how they were in the Simpsons where they, 
I think like when in the Simpsons, when Sideshow Bob was underneath the car, they were like, oh, let's take a shortcut to the desert. And they like ran over these cactuses and stuff. And he, by the time he got up, he was like bruised and bloody and stuff. So I'm like, if that is, if that was really possible, I, I mean, there as long, I guess as long as they're on a flat road, it, it wouldn't be as bad. And so the Bowdens had kind of like a SUV, so it's a little higher. So he had some clearance. So maybe that helped. I'm just, I just don't. I just don't see how that's realistic to strap yourself on the bottom and just go for miles. I mean, wouldn't the metal underneath the car get hot and, like, burn you? Burn through your clothes? <sighs> okay, so let me just move on from that. Um, so as they're getting on the boat and it's sailing down Cape Fear, that's where the boat was at and that's where they're going to sail. It's down Cape Fear. Hence the movie name, Cape Fear. It's the the climax the ending of the movie it's a very important part so you know that's why the movie's named Cape Fear I guess so anyway the boat is you know it shows a shot of the boat sailing down Cape Fear and there is a thunderstorm coming you see it in the background it's kind of darkening there's like lightning and it's like you just know something it's very foreboding you know something's about to happen they think they're in the clear but no the thunderstorm is on the horizon. Horizon danger is coming. Also, when they get onto the water, onto Cape Fear, it's also like sundown. The sun is setting, which is kind of like signaling that night is coming. Well, it is. It's not kind of. It's literally signaling that night is coming. And with the night, things are harder to see. You're more vulnerable because it's dark. You know, you don't have that kind of comfort and visibility that you would have in the daytime. There's a shot of Sam dropping the anchor down in the water. You know, once they get further up in the cape, when it drops in the water, it's like violently drops in the water. And that also was a sense of foreboding. Like, this is violent. Like, you see how that thing just, it dropped in the water and it was like a loud clank or whatever. Okay, so the whole idea of being on the houseboat I thought was stupid because if someone's chasing you, or not chasing you, but like... You're trying to get away from this guy who's a killer, right? And you go on a houseboat. I mean, not only, okay, so they get, so you're on the houseboat and the killer comes and gets you on the houseboat. So first you got to get off the houseboat. Then you got to swim and then you got to get onto the land. Like that just makes it harder for you to get away. So that whole thing is weird to me. But the idea of him like dropping the anchor it makes things seem more safe because the boat just can't drift away, you know, down the river or whatever. So it's supposed to be like safety and security. But the anchor, the dropped anchor makes it harder for you to escape quickly because you got to get out to the side of the boat. You got to pull up the anchor. Then you got to go back, steer the boat, start the boat or whatever. You know, instead of just being able to just go, you know, pilot the boat or whatever, it's safety and I guess not like danger, but just makes makes you more vulnerable because you can't just up and, and get away faster. You know, you can't just like jump in the car and take off. I don't know why they're on the boat. They could, I mean, I would have rather just gone to like airport, got on a plane and flew somewhere or just drove somewhere. But he was, <laughs> he was trapped underneath their car. You know what I mean? Because he would have went wherever they went. But, and I'm like, you... 
if you you wouldn't expect somebody to be stopped underneath your car. So I'm like, oh, they could have stopped and just let me check underneath the car and see. You know, I guess they could check the tire and then see this dude up under there. But I, I still think to go on a houseboat was a dumb idea. I wouldn't have gone on a houseboat. Anyway, this is not about me. This is not about what I would have done in the situation. <laughs> Sam and Lee have a conversation at the dinner table. I mentioned this earlier. Where Sam says that he's caught some... He can catch more fish because they're eating. And there's like... He caught fish for dinner. And he's like, oh, I can catch more fish. And then Lee says she she has enough food here for them to last a week. But then there's this moment where she stops herself from talking and she looks at Sam and she sees the look on his face and she realizes that Sam wants to feel like a man in the traditional sense, a protector and provider this whole time. He's, he's, he's been failing at that, you know, at least the protector part, his, his inability to, to protect his family. I think it was emasculating for him. And so that part just kind of signified. It also signified that sort of Lee and Sam are kind of, they're in sync now. They've kind of rebonded their, re, not rekindled, but sort of like rebonded. They're kind of gotten together to defeat this guy or gotten together. You know, they're trying to stick together as a family because everything's falling apart. You know, this guy is trying to kill them and they're like family. They're, they're all that you know, they have is each other. And so that whole look in that conversation was also kind of like, okay, we're in this together, you know, let, you know, let's not argue, let's not make a big deal about this. Let's just work together. And so they kind of come into agreement and they get synced in that way. During the whole, the ending scene and the scene on, you know, the scene on the boat is where Max uses his brute force along with his intelligence to outwit Sam. And when I looked up brute, brute strength, it says brute strength, savage violence, unreasoning strength, exceptional physical power. The figurative sense reflects the origin for brute, which comes from the Latin brutus for heavily, for heavy, stupid and unreasoning, which is kind of like, I don't know the words, right? Oxy, oxymoron. It's kind of where it says like heavy, stupid, and unreasoning. So Max has that quality, but he's also very intelligent. And so it's like a weird juxtaposition. That's why I mentioned earlier that he is the beast, you know, the sort of uncontrolled rage, the beast. And he's also the cage, the control and the refinement that controls the beast all wrapped in the one. So he's like these two battling forces that are working together in the same person and by the end of the movie the brute force is what comes out on top and his his mental stability sort of deteriorates I think that his need for revenge is just overwhelming and overpowering and it just goes back to the primal instinct of violence and strength and just force and just physical power and just using that to control the situation and control Sam and really get his time to punish Sam and to see Sam get punished. So as his, so as Max's mental state becomes more unstable, it's setting the, the sort of the final stage 
Max wants the final stage to be torture and death, and his rage towards Sam is very, very strong. He is, he's going to be basically judge, jury, and executioner. There is a, a scene where Max lights a flare, and I think that really signified or represented Max's personality and that he's explosive, he's like fire, and he's dangerous. It also alludes to he ends up getting burned because he's smoking a cigar and Danielle squirts the lighter fluid on him as the cigar is lit, you know, and his he just goes up in flames. So that was kind of like a precursor to that. Max becomes more un, more and more unhinged as the events on the houseboat go on. His methodical, calculated nature falls away as he loses control. He becomes more erratical and more just angry. Like he's not calm and cool and collected like he usually is. I don't know why these people are screaming outside my building. Oh my God. Hopefully that didn't end up in the recording. Anyway, <laughs> Sam finally, okay, it's during this scene where Max is sort of putting him on trial that Sam finally admits out loud in front of Lee and Danielle and Max. He knew that Max was guilty. He said that Max had bragged him about beating two previous charges similar to the 1977 conviction and that because of Sam knowing that about the things that Max confessed him, which was supposed to be like Laura client privilege, you know, he could say these things and that wouldn't, it wasn't supposed to affect his trial or affect his lawyer defending him, you know, but it did. And, you know, Sam admits to suppressing evidence because of all of that. Because he really wanted to see Sam, I mean, he really wanted to see Max get punished for what he'd done. After the confession and this mock trial, Max sentences Sam to the ninth circle of hell, which refers to Dante's Inferno. And I had to do a little research on, on this because I, I'm not familiar with Dante's Inferno. Max condemns Sam for withholding the specific evidence that would have given him a lighter sentence in, in jail, despite Sam's insistence that his crime was too heinous for the evidence to be taken into account. Max berates him for failing to properly do his duty as a lawyer. During the trial, Max tells, well, the mock trial, Max tells Sam, I'm Virgil and I'm guiding you through the gates of hell. We are now in the ninth circle, the circle of traitors, traitors to country, traitors to fellow man, traitors to God. You, sir, are charged with betraying the principles of all three. Quote for me the American Bar Association's rules of professional conduct. So he knows his law now. He's this is one of the books he's read in prison. And I feel like it's like it's inspired him, like it fueled him in regards to the circles of hell that he's referring to in Dante's Inferno. The ninth circle is treachery. At the base of the well, Dante finds himself in finds himself within a large frozen lake. Coxitus, the ninth circle of hell, trapped in the ice, each according to his guilt are punished sinners guilty guilty of treachery against those with whom they had special relations. 
And this happens to be, you know, the relationship, the special relationship between client and lawyer. Within the circle are inner circles for different kinds of treachery. The final deepest level of hell is reserved for traitors, betrayers, and oath takers. Its most famous inmate is Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed Jesus. Max starts speaking in tongues and singing church hymns as he drowns in the final scene, which is really as you see him deteriorating. After it all happens, you know, the storm that was coming in the beginning when they first got on the boat, the storm was raging the whole time on the boat, symbolic. And then afterwards, after the violence is over and as Sam is drowning in the water, it's a calm after the storm. The storm has subsided, everything, the water is calm, everybody is alive. Also very symbolic of, you know, the weather matching the situation and the violence and the just everything that was going on within the boat. Another symbolic visuals in the movie, Sam and Max were fighting and everything, and Sam has this blood on his hands. Sam washes the blood from his hands in the water of the river, literally and figuratively, literally in the water, and then figuratively washing the blood from his hands after he confessed during his mock trial. I guess the resolution at the end of the film is, I don't know, found salvation. You know, he confessed he confessed his sins, and he, I don't want to say forgiven, you know? I don't know, but maybe that's what it took that he... You know, he confessed his sins out loud, but can he be forgiven if he confesses his sins, but he doesn't feel that what he did was wrong? How are we measuring what's wrong? Is it morally, you know, Christian faith? Or are we just talking about in the legal sense? Because there's like two definitions of what he did and what was it wrong or was it not wrong, depending on if you're interpreting it legally or you're interpreting it in like, you know, Christian belief, faith, it's up for debate. I mean, it's not for debate. I guess it just depends which one you want to accept. But anyway, we're going to move on to the final section. And I was like, the final section is kind of short, but it's it's kind of long. So the final section is the family. It's going to be about Lee and Danielle, their relationship with Sam, their interaction with Max. It's crazy. Like I said, they're collateral damage. They just, they are Sam, I mean, not Sam, Lee and Daniela just basically a way to hurt Sam and to punish him by hurting Lee and Danielle, paying for the sins of Sam. You know, I mean, they are blameless and all this. They didn't have anything to do with his conviction. The poem that, in the, the intro of the movie, Daniela's reading a poem I don't think it's a poem. I think it's like some kind of essay that she wrote. I don't think it was like an actual poem, but it was a, I think it's like some type of essay that she was writing about the events that happened to her. It's an excerpt from the future. It definitely, it's just like a foreboding feeling of how she's describing Cape Fear and what it, what it means and what it meant to her. And then it also alluding to the loss of innocence and the danger about what's to come. I definitely think that, I can't remember exactly what she said, but I remember it being how she felt about being on the houseboat and 
being in, on Cape Fear and then afterward, after it happened and how things changed and how she views it, how innocent it felt like being on the lake, you know, because now, you know, after all this happens, it's represents something danger, dangerous, something violent, something scary, you know, it's triggering, it's traumatic. Lee learns that Max was convict, convicted of assault, or I think if they said battery, a lesser charge than what was he was initially charged with. They find out that the initial crime was actually rape. They find, um, Sam tells Lee that the victim was 16 years old. At the time when Sam is telling Lee about the girl being 16, Danielle overhears them. She kind of Here's the last part where she mentions she's only 16 or something like that. So she only hears that part. And when she overhears him, um, she thinks they're talking about her. She doesn't know that they're talking about Max's crime. And like I said earlier, because he's leaving out these important, these really important details, it leaves Max, I mean, it leaves Danielle very vulnerable because she doesn't know that she should be afraid of Max at all. When she actually comes across him in person, she's she, she she's not as terrified like she should be because she should be really terrified when she comes across this guy. When she finds out, when she finds out that he's the guy that's been stalking, you know, messing with the family, poison the dog, like she should really be terrified, but she's not. the The whole backstory with Sam Sam's history of infidelity lets you know that they. Sam and Lee, uh, they have a troubled marriage. Like, they aren't over it because he's trying to get with Lori. Lee is suspicious. She knows something's going on. And so it's just bringing up all these old things that they thought they had moved on from figuratively and literally by moving to a whole new place. But he doing the same stuff. So he's the whole okay so his history of infidelity and the whole issue with Lori and that he's he hasn't really changed at all that makes him more vulnerable too because you know that's a that's something that Max can go for and target by the time he really he gets ready to punish him and restore him you know he's got nothing left he's he's easy prey and also because it it would just make the punishment more because of everything he's lost you know what I mean like if he's his wife finds out that he's you know he has infidelity and then Max targets that then he could lose his marriage you know he could lose his his job or his position at his it's not illegal to have affair but it's definitely scandalous like people wouldn't have taken him seriously a lot of gossip so he could have lost a lot and having him lose all these things throughout the film I mean I definitely it would have been more exciting and more fun for Max it definitely did not work in his in work in Sam's favor for him to sort of be keeping all this stuff secret he's just walking a fine line between being faithful and falling back into the same pattern behavior so I mean if he Max hadn't got them on the houseboat when they got back home and this situation with Lori and all this came out. Well, you know what? Even after the fact, you know, because they survived the boat, right? So it's like Max is dead, but I can only imagine Lee has all these questions that are going to come up. Or maybe they're just not talking about it. Maybe they just suppress all this information. I mean, you know, the trauma of everything that went on. Anyway, I'm off track. 
Um, <laughs> when Lee first meets Max, he makes a comment, Max makes a comment that Sam betrayed the both of them. Sam betrayed him when he, and I don't think she knew about how he hid evidence at this point in the film, but he's definitely, when he says Sam betrayed them both, he's talking about when Sam hid the evidence, but it's also referencing Sam's past infidelity, trying to find commonality between like, we have a common enemy. So he's trying to like turn um, Lee against Sam. So that's obviously part of his plan is sort of plant that seed in her mind of to make, I guess, to make her remember about what he did to her. And I definitely think him planting that little seed in her mind would have made Lee question Sam about, you know, what's this guy talking about? What does he mean he betrayed us? But I don't think she knew at this point that he had hit evidence against the guy. And then... Max is somehow found out about what went on in Sam and Lee's marriage. Like, he must have hired a private investigator or somebody to dig up all this stuff on this man and his family. Cause, and to him to just say that and use that, like I say, he's a people person. He knows how to play people. When Max first interacts with Danielle, like I mentioned earlier, it's he's he calls her on the phone and he pretends to be her drama teacher. And I, I guess Danielle's number was in the phone book. I don't know how, but like I said, he probably, he had to have hired a private eye while he was in prison or something to dig up all this information on this man. When he calls her on the phone, it's, it's so obvious that just so much of his personality and so much of what he does and how, how he knows how to appeal to people and, and knows what to say and to get people to feel whatever he wants them to feel. Like, he's manipulative. Like, he knows, he does it really well. Uh, he knows how to appeal to teen girls, probably because he's done the same thing with teen girls in the past. I mean, because in 1977, when he was charged, the victim was was 16. So maybe he has a, he has a history with underage, you know, with teenage girls. It's part of grooming, you know, when someone is, you know, trying to get to their victim and make their victim trust them, especially when it comes to like when it's an age dynamic. I mean, they even, I mean, it even happens with grown with adult victim and, and perpetrators, but I mean, people always talk about it when it's with adult and children, a part of the grooming to know how to appeal them and to make them, you know, make the person trust you, you know, to make the victim have positive feelings associated with being with you and being around you so that way they'll want to be around you and I think so he's grooming Danielle at this point on the phone he he's also you know he's making her feel important making her feel wanted making her feel grown up giving her attention and because he knows all this stuff about her family and what they've gone through you know her parents and stuff he knows that tension and feeling important and wanted is something that she's lacking and so he uses that to his advantage to take advantage of Danielle and then on this on the phone call he plays this song to Danielle and Danielle feels kind of flattered you know he's this older guy he's her teacher she's like you know someone's giving me attention you know he thinks I'm special he's playing this song for me I can't remember the song. It was, oh, it was, um, 
It was Etta James. Is it called Do Right Man? Or Do Right Woman? Or Do Right or something like that. But he was in there quoting the song. He played the song and then he was like quoting it. It's like, you know, I'm a do right man. I'm going to do right by you, Daniel. And I'm just like, why are you talking about doing right by this girl? Like she's your woman and she's 15 and she's supposed, you know, she's supposed to be a student of you. It was inappropriate, very inappropriate. And then it gets more inappropriate. Danielle, she goes back to school. This this is like taking place over the summer. Oh, wait, no. Okay, it's all during the summer. She's going to summer school. When she she goes to meet him because he told her to like meet her in the auditorium for like drama class. She gets there and there's nobody in the auditorium. Obviously because he's not a drama teacher. He's not having a class. He's just trying to get her somewhere alone so he can talk to her. He is dressed completely different. When I mentioned earlier about him being wearing like loud, gaudy, flashy clothes, he also wears hair all slicked back and stuff. But when he is in this auditorium talking with Danielle, he's completely changed his appearance. He he doesn't have any like gel or pomade or wax or whatever in his hair. And... You know, so it's not like greasy and wet looking. And then instead of his usual like flashy clothes, he's wearing like these white slacks and he's got this um, preppy polo shirt and he's wearing a Lacoste carnigan on. So he knows how to manipulate people. And in this instance, I mean, not only is he manipulating Danielle with words, but he's manipulating her and I mean, not just her, but other people on the campus because he's going to blend in with them. He's dressing kind of like um, conservative, preppy, um, upper class with his little polo shirt and carnigan, his little white slacks. So he knows how to blend in. He knows how to manipulate people with his appearance. It's all a game to him. He's not your average criminal, which is what I should, should have been saying all along. He's not your you know, what you would think of a typical, stereotypical ex-con who doesn't know anything. In the auditorium, he's smoking marijuana. And this is another way he's sort of manipulating Danielle with image. He's trying to make himself seem more cool, more like a friend than a teacher. He also had to have known that Danielle had previously gotten in trouble for smoking marijuana at school. Because, I mean, he knows everything else about the family. So he had to have known that he's saying, um, with you, I'm like you. We both like to smoke. We like the same things. He suggests some sexually mature, I mean, I don't know if they're like sexually mature, but they're like really mature books that have like explicit sexual, sexual descriptions in the books to her. Another part of, of the grooming process to sort of get her accustomed to inappropriate things for her age and you know once she's reading about these books and he's singing these you know inappropriate songs to her it kind of sets in her mind that these sort of things are normal for him to be talking to her about and so eventually she wouldn't be as alarmed and it would just seem like everyday thing so she would be more relaxed and more trusting he uses her naivety against her. She, I mean, she's out of her league. She doesn't, she is, I mean, she's a kid. Like, she doesn't understand what's going on. She can't see the whole picture. 
Max is able to talk to her and see the world from her perspective. Like he knows how to appeal to her. He knows what's to say to her. He talks to her in a way that she can understand and relate to. And then also he knows so much about her and her family. So he can talk to her or say things to her that are very personal and that she would assume like, oh my God, he understands me. He knows me. But no, he's just talked to your family. He knows everything about you. And he knows how you feel because he's an adult and he understands all these emotions and all these feelings better than you can because you're just a kid. He kisses Danielle. Like first he puts his finger in her mouth, which is like really weird. And then he kisses Dan, like a really long romantic kiss on the mouth. And at first she's like, she wants, you know, she likes him. She wants the attention and she's like flattered to, you know, receive the attention from an older guy. But then it happens like you see it on her face. It's like within moments she realizes that, you know, what happened is wrong. Like she can get in trouble and that she, you know, that wasn't supposed to happen. She wasn't supposed to do that. And then she sort of panics. You know, it's just like all these emotions are kind of like happening within like seconds. And you see the reaction on her face and she panics and then she walks out. But eventually, as the movie goes on and her parents are talking about Max and these things are going on around her because of Max and he's stalking her family and her dad's scared and her mom's scared. But she doesn't really know what's going on because she, she's more in the dark than Lee is. She ends up eventually eventually she starts to feel um sympathy for Max or she sympathizes with Max because of things that he said to her because he knows her dad and how she feels about her dad and she probably sides with her mom and kind of blames him for everything that's happened um in regards to the cheating and and it being, you know, they're, you know, arguing all the time and having to move to a different, you know, different town, different school. So she probably like blames her dad for a lot of stuff. She's so in the dark. Like she doesn't know what Max did to Lori, how violent it was. She doesn't know about his 16 year old victim. She's completely in the dark. She's completely like, you know, when the phrase a lamb to slaughter, that's Danielle. Like, she doesn't know anything about it. She doesn't know until it's too late. You know, by this point, you know, she's kind of been like a brat to her parents. And she doesn't understand why they're being so scared and cautious. When Sam fakes going on the trip, Danielle starts to, she starts to sort of like rebel against them. And she's a little bit angry about what's going on because she started to sympathize with Max and so she's like he's really not that bad of a guy you know why are you doing all this stuff to him he told her when he when Max met Danielle in the auditorium he told her that he didn't poison the dog so she's young she's naive she believed him that he didn't and that you know the dad is just kind of out to get this guy she blames her father for cheating on her mom and causing the problems in our marriage max and he knows this so when he was talking to her he kind of alluded to he's a good guy um not like her dad he talks about how um how the dad made the mom feel like he's saying all this stuff like he knows about her her problems and he knows about her family max blames sam for putting him in prison and then but he sort of alludes, like he says it without saying, 
that Sam did something to him. And so he blames Sam. And then he's like, well, you blame your dad for doing all this stuff. So we can kind of let's get together and let's blame, uh, let's blame, you know, your dad for everything and have a common enemy. Max, like he had to have been in their house multiple times because he ends up leaving a copy of the book, Henry Miller's Sexes for Danielle. And when I, so I, I did like a Wikipedia of the book and it, it said there was like some really explicit, explicit wasn't the word, but raunchy, um, sex scenes or descriptions of sex and he he leaves it for her outside she keeps it a secret from her parent she doesn't tell them all the things they talked about when when they met in the auditorium so max is getting into the family and he's you know weaseling his way into everyone's mind to to turn them against sam so that is the end of my analysis for cape fear I didn't have a nice little neat ending, unfortunately. It's a great film. You guys should definitely see it. It is on Netflix at the time of this recording. I don't know how long it will be available, but it is on Netflix. I haven't seen the original from the 19, was it 1962, I believe. I haven't seen that one, but I probably should. So don't forget to follow me on Spotify and uh, or any other podcast platform. Just search for Juncture Podcast and you'll see my logo. You can also find me on Twitter at Juncture Podcast, all one word. For those interested in dream interpretation, you can have your dream analyzed on episode of Juncture. You just go to my Twitter page at Juncture Podcast. There's a pinned post with a link to a form. As always, you can remain anonymous if you want to. So please head over to Twitter, fill out the form, um, share it. And thanks for listening and I'll see y'all next time.